we we waited a few extra days to record this episode, but it feels like years because really I have been does. looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's an arguably much better pairing than last week. Well, it's interesting. This week, I think, is our second conscious like pairing of two movies. You mean subconscious pairing? Well, okay, so we we'll get into that later. Where the the pairing was chosen sort of randomly, but also because they're both westerns. So I was like, why not? Yeah, uh, but there wasn't much thought put into it. But I think as we both discovered, there was a lot of deep significance to putting these two films together that was perfect. My suggestion of this movie, or at least my, um, uh, uh, you know, acceptance of this being the movie of the week wasn't necessarily drawing the Western parallels. It was more so we just watched a really shitty movie about greed. Let's watch a really good movie about greed. It was sort of like a redemptive viewing. But right. Watching both these in the same day, I'm like, oh, okay, there are a lot of parallels here. Yeah, and of course, the other episode we did was Roma and Yee Yee. Yeah, that was good. I like these. I like these episodes about where we kind of make conscious or unconscious decisions to put two things together. Um, every once in a while, they're nice. I don't think we should do it all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sometimes it doesn't line up. Also, whenever we do new movies, that never lines up. It could have if we did. Uncut Gems and uh, Killing of Chinese Bookie, but you refused. Oh, yeah. on the off chance, we may be able to do some interesting pairings with a completely new movie and a BFI film. Because mm. as the as we know, uh, the BFI does like to choose influential movies. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that a movie made today will be influenced by That's an true. influential That's film. That's true. They're all influential to some degree. Except for The Invitation of Life. <laughs> That is nothing, nothing there. I guess some, uh, we'll start with a quick little follow-up, uh, see what we've been doing for the past week. I do have a follow-up from our previous episode with our, our good friend Chandler. Oh, yes. I said I was going to get, I was going to get Cure, and I got Cure. You got Cure? That, but On that, Blu-ray. That, that's not a Region A Blu-ray, is it? Now, here's the thing. <laughs> on, on Amazon. Yeah. Well, okay, so I got it, and I was very disappointed to find out it was a Region B Blu-ray. But on Amazon, it comes in plastic-wrapped, and it has a little sticker on it that says, like, Special Edition Blu-ray. Yeah. So the picture on Amazon, that Special Edition Blu-ray sticker covers up this little UK oh, 15 no. mark. Which, you know, anyone who, who buys Blu-rays will quickly catch on. That if you see that, it's probably not a movie for your region. Yeah, exactly. So I didn't see it on Amazon. And it, it to be fair, it is in there. But you have to scroll down to the specifications about the, the Blu-ray. Uh, which, who has time for that? Anyway, the, the good news is that, A, it looks nice. It looks very nice. It looks like an Arrow release. How many discs yeah, are in a, there? Masters of Cinema, Eureka. It has a booklet. So mm -hmm. I have essays that I can read. Oh. Those are not Region B essays. Oh. So this doesn't play on my TV Blu-ray player. Yeah. Which prompted me to look for all Region Blu-ray players for Those future purchase. Those are expensive. Maybe. Yeah. So future <laughs> purchase. But um, it does work. My computer USB Blu-ray player, that is an all Region Blu-ray player. Interesting. anything. So I, I have access to the, the special features and stuff on my computer, and I can watch it there. 
Did you know that there are Blu-ray players that are there? There are very few and they're very expensive, but there are dual Blu-ray VHS players. I have never seen one of those and I kind of want one, although I already have. I have a, as you know, I have a VHS player that I hook up to my 4K TV. Yes. And I did watch Aladdin with you. And let me tell you, I I understand nostalgia. I understand records. I will never understand the sentiment for VHS. It is awful. It is an awful way of looking, uh, watching a movie. I would agree with that, with the exception of films that I watched as a kid. When we watched Aladdin, there was a distinct feel to it. It's not a good feel. It's not a qual. It's not like film grain or something. There is a feel to it that if you're nostalgic for it is nice. If you're not, it's just subpar. Yeah. And to be fair, the the 4K TV does upscale things a little bit. So we weren't getting full VHS quality there. But there was a few movies that I've watched as a kid a lot on VHS. Uh, Peter Pan, the Disney version. Um, Oh, yeah. The Sound of Music. On VHS? On VHS. How many is that? Was it one VHS? No, it's Side two. Titanic. That was two. I was about to say. Okay. Yeah. And then Fiddler on the Roof. That's another two VHS ones. And those later, more recently, I've gotten the Blu-rays. And it's like you're watching a completely different movie, especially exactly. after like I've seen those films at least 10 times each on VHS. So I'm used to that quality. It's just, wow. It's so night and day. It's really, it was really interesting. Uh, one of the most interesting quality experiences of like a jump, seeing that kind of jump in quality between releases. I own a copy of Goodfellas on DVD mm. that for some reason is split into two. Like when you watch this copy of Goodfellas on DVD, you watch it and literally at the, the midway point, right around when um, uh, Karen is uh, uh, yelling at uh, Ray Liotta's other girlfriend or whatever, it stops and you have to flip the DVD. It is so weird. And I always forget. Well, I have a Blu-ray copy now, but I always used to forget. And it's 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 like a record. Yeah. It's so Are weird. there like special features that warrant? No. Needing? OK, no. I, I was going to get into this when we get into the Wild Bunch, but it literally is. You put it in and it starts. Mm, which is exactly that's what my Wild Bunch Blu-ray did. Yep. yep same. Because I put it in and I went out. OK. We'll get into this later. I want to show you one thing that I got, though, because I went okay. to Zia last night and I haven't shown you this. Hold on. Oh, exciting. It's downstairs. OK, two things. One, this was probably the most niche thing that I've been very excited to get. It's not it's not a movie, but it is the soundtrack to a movie. Mm. Oh, my God. Where yes. did you get that? <laughs> it's at Zia. It, it was $52. And for the, That's obviously this is a podcast, so you can't see, it is the score to Porco Rosso on vinyl. Not only is it on vinyl, but look, it's like entirely in Japanese. That is beautiful. Which I think we share this sentiment that the the bygone days, the, the song written for Porker is one of the greatest pieces of music ever composed for a movie. Yes, bygone days, beautiful piece of music. Amazing. And I think, I don't know if you, you consciously worded it that way, because you said pieces of music written for a movie. Yeah. It's not in the movie. It's not. <laughs> no. It isn't. <laughs> I literally, I so I have a copy of Porco Rosso on my computer for doing some 
of the YouTube work. And I was literally, I went in and I scrubbed through the entire, like I clicked through it and they're like, is there not just like a little bit of it? No. Where is it? And it's not even <laughs> it's in there. It's not in there. But it was written for the movie. It's part of the soundtrack. Yeah. It, it's so weird. It is, it is just such a beautiful song that is so nostalgic, but also depressing, but also beautiful. It's one of the most like painfully beautiful pieces of music I've ever heard. And there are, there are hints of the music throughout the movie. That song specifically, it's like alluded to, I guess, but you never hear the full thing. And then I'm, I always left wondering, what was this made for? It was probably made for the movie and they just didn't use yeah. it. Yeah. But which is a shame because it's, oh, but the other thing that I got, it was, I went into Zia literally just for that. I, I knew that was there. I finally picked it up. But then I saw this there for $25. Oh, and I've never it's seen David Lynch's Lost Highway, which I have yeah. also never seen. I've never seen it. There's a lot of David Lynch movies I haven't seen, but Lost Highway, like, I never see a copy of this. No, so that'll be my viewing well, for the. I, I yeah, will be very, very curious to hear your thoughts on that. Lost Highway and Wild at Heart are the two I haven't seen. Oh, I haven't seen The Elephant Man either. I'm ashamed to say my David Lynch viewing is not. Yeah, the, because I consider him one of my favorites, but what and I that's only I've off seen, of a few movies. Yeah, exactly. Like three. Plus Let's be the fair, TV Twin show. Peaks is like 30, 40 hours of. But it's, it's different. a separate thing. It's a different yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Porco Rosso soundtrack. All of uh, Joe Hisaishi's work for Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli. Amazing. Composer is just beautiful. Like Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, all of the soundtracks. You know, the whatever, Wind Rises regardless, is a great soundtrack. Oh, whatever you think did, about did the movies. Did he do movies, The Wind Rises? Yeah. I think all he of did? them. Uh, okay, damn. Yeah. So um, that's, that is a good purchase, my friend. Uh, 50 bucks. <laughs> It worth $50. it. $50. Very much worth it. Uh, are we on the same page that... Because I know for uh, Porco Rosso has always been my favorite. Is it now your favorite or is it Spirited Away still above it? I'd like to state for the record that Porco Rosso has been one of my favorite films uh, for as long as I have been alive. So... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a recent convert within the last two years. I'd say, I'd say it's always been my... In my, like my top tier mm-hmm. opinions, I've I really have put Spirited Away up top, although it not it has not necessarily always been my favorite. Mm-hmm. And there are some films like that where I will my appreciation for what the film is overrides my personal love for something, right? Because like sometimes you can love something that you know is not as good. Yeah. And this is where it's more like I have cared equally for Spirited Away and Porco Rosso, but I've always considered Spirited Away to be the more emotionally connected. No, the better of the two. We will perhaps discuss this eventually on the podcast. Yeah, we will. It's only been until recently that I've I've faced the music and said that, you know, Porco Rosso has been probably for a while. My personal favorite, and that, it sounds like you made the exact you made the same judgment or decision I did for Inside Lou and Davis over The Big Lebowski, mm. because in my heart I know like I love The Big Lebowski and it's one of my favorite movies ever. But in my heart, I'm like, yeah, Lou and Davis is probably a little bit better. I I love Lou and Davis. Yeah, sometimes we, we it takes a while for us to accept. Yeah, what we truly think about because, films. Because there's something 
you know, you get this feeling that if you don't love it the most, then you hate it, which not true at all. But at the same time, you got to you got to be real. You got to be. Yeah. Real. I don't I don't really know what I've been watching this week that I would consider worthwhile talking about at the moment. Yeah, so. same. I, you know, I will say this two two things I've been revisiting this week, because after the last few movies that we've seen for this podcast, I kind of just needed to step back in my comfort zone revisit things that i like or you know have been liking i've revisit or two three things i've watched in the past week of note uh one to catch a thief Ooh. alfred hitchcock that's just a classic feel good hitchcock film. no no oh i what are you i am so conflicted with hitchcock sometimes because the movies that i love from him i love i love so much but this one i was i was just i left underwhelmed underwhelmed in just about every way but i will say this one movie i did revisit for the third time in a year was punch drunk love i like it a little better than i have before i don't know what it was about this time that clicked but i was just so because uh i watched with my girlfriend and i told her like oh this is the other really good adam sandler movie that uh you know he did but this one isn't nearly as anxiety inducing as uncut gems and then I was watching it. And I'm like, no, this is more anxiety inducing than Uncut Gems. Because what did she think of it? She liked it, but she's like, it's not something I want to watch again because I just felt anxious the whole time. And the thing is, Uncut Gems, yes, it's anxious. But like you said last time, when you know what's happening, where it goes, it becomes less anxiety inducing. There's still certain scenes that are anxiety inducing, but Punch Drunk Love, just about every scene in the warehouse everything from the people who are constantly interrupting him to the way that the score just becomes increasingly erratic i think the difference between the two probably is that uncut gems doesn't have a score and well it does yes, it does let me take that what back are you talking about in a lot of the scenes that were very anxiety inducing in the first time around don't necessarily have a score sometimes they do but sometimes it's just people talking and i think over a lot of Punch Drunk Love, you have that very kind of techno out there it's so weird. music. It's that so is, weird. It's overbearing, it, and you, you latch onto that music, and it, it just doesn't lose its power. Because music, more than more so than dialogue, can just latch on to, to make you feel something. Because the music is like, everyone is playing an instrument at different rhythms and different speeds. <laughs> so it's kind of like a lot of people are shouting at you. It's like the musical equivalent of that. And yeah. half of what makes those scenes so hard to watch is the music. Whereas Uncut Gems, it was mainly what was happening. I still think some parts are really weird and not in a good way. Like uh, when Adam Sandler says, I want to smash your face in with a hammer. And she says, I want to scoop out your eyes and eat them. Ew, weird, gross. But overall, much better than I remember. I even bought the Criterion, which was a... Yes, it wasn't the best move. There's not much on the Criterion as far as special features go. It's no, no PTA stuff. It's mainly music stuff and um, like press tour stuff repurposed for the uh, Criterion release. Sure. But it's a nice it's a nice cover and it's a nice quality of the movie. So and the final thing that I rewatched have been rewatching. I've said it multiple times. Fargo season three is the best season of Fargo. You know, at some point we should uh, we might want to do a Fargo review on this podcast and i will say this the reason why there is one painfully stupid reveal at the end of season two that makes me, season two used to be my favorite 
But the this one little moment at the end concerning Hanzi and where he ends up being after the events of season two. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. It is so obnoxiously stupid that it sort of ruins the rest of the season for me. It is the one blemish on an otherwise perfect season of television. And Fargo season three ha- is messy in a lot of ways, but it's so like Twin Peaks ish that I love it. I don't know it. The the moment you're talking about doesn't really have any influence on the actual plot of the season. So I can. It's no, very it doesn't. But it's ignorable. just so stupid. It's so stupid. It's so, so stupid. OK. And I will say of all the characters in all three of the seasons, David Thewlis's VM Varga is just so otherworldly creepy. And he's my favorite. That's what I've been watching. What have you been watching? Well, I think we'll we'll just hop right into our, our movie. We, we're doing a uh, which one are we doing first? The VFI one or the personal pick? We're doing the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Ah, first. yes. The classic. The yes. John. We'll Houston go in historical classic. order, too, because I think that that would be good. That's true. Yes. Yes. So our first movie of the week, our pick is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is a 1948 movie directed by John Huston. And it is an adaptation of the B Tavern. No, it is an adaptation of the novel by B Tavern. What kind of whatever name that is from 1927 novels, same name. The main character is played by Humphrey Bogart. He's kind of this loner drifter down in Tampico, Mexico, who meets up with another American down there. Bob Curtin is the character played by Tim Colt, Tim Holt, not Tim Colt. And they have some success and some failure, and then they eventually run into a old-time prospector played by Walter Houston, and they decide to all three of them go searching for mountain for go searching for gold in the mountains. <laughs> uh, the alcohol has finally uh, reared its ugly head, and yes, uh, you know, go searching for mountains in the gold. <laughs> that makes sense too, yes. doesn't it? It does. It does. Now, uh, I just want to start a preface this discussion by um, sharing a little interesting anecdote. I watched this movie for the first time last year. Uh, Jacob had lent me the Blu-ray and said it was essential viewing. So trusting Jacob, I, I took it home and I watched it and it was. But I watched it a year ago, the exact date being Jan- or June the 10th, 2019. And this week, when we decided to uh, watch it for the uh, podcast, uh, you know, I uh, finally found a day to watch it and I watched it. And as I went to log it the second time, I realized that I had watched it on June 10th, 2020. So literally in one exact year to the day that I saw it for the first time, I watched it again. And now I'm seriously considering the idea of uh, making every June 10th treasure of the Sierra Madre Day. Uh, a, A Chandler Chavez personal holiday. Personal holiday. And the reason why I would make that a personal holiday, this second viewing, it it might just go into like my top 15, top 20 of this really? movie. This movie okay. is incredible. I, I think I've seen it three. This is my third time viewing it. I watched it. Mm-hmm. The It was one of the, the last films I watched in 2017, I think. Because that, that, that was the first year I was doing the Excel spreadsheet of of logging movies 
And I remember that distinctly that was one of the last movies I logged that year. And then I watched it about a year later. And then again now. And my my opinion on the film has stayed pretty consistent throughout those three viewings, uh, which isn't always the case. And mm-hmm. for our second film, I have had very, very different reactions to that the second film each time I watch it. But this one, this one has consistently remained one of the great movies that I I have the pleasure to rewatch. Yeah, and you know, it is it's a movie that um Paul Thomas Anderson really liked this movie. Specifically during the uh, period of time he was filming There Will Be Blood. Um I, and if you if you look at Daniel Plainview, the character in There Will Be Blood, it's there's a lot of John Houston in that character, especially the vocal inflections. But Paul Thomas Anderson in preparing for this movie had told Daniel Day-Lewis to watch this movie over and over because he stated that every question of life can be answered in this movie. And I had read about that after the first time I watched it. And I'm like, OK, no, I don't know about that. But there is so much in this movie about human nature and the, the cruel irony of life and just what greed can do to a person in a way that made me retroactively. The whole time I was watching this, I was just thinking, why did I watch greed? Four hours, <laughs> four hours of something that never came close to what John Houston did in barely over two. And the thing is, this is not only a movie that is insanely like prolific in its examination of human nature it's also really entertaining it's like consistently it's, it entertaining it is it really, one of those old classic films that i would probably recommend without hesitation to most people these days yeah because some people you know, when they see something like casablanca or citizen kane they'll think okay i get why this is important but it's kind of boring sierra madre is consistently like engaging yeah i'd agree with you on citizen kane i think Casablanca still is pretty, pretty acceptable to modern audiences. Uh, yeah, at least more so than Citizen Kane is. But mm-hmm. it this is as far as I think John Huston's filmography goes. This is his best. I think the only other one that people would talk about really is uh, the, the Maltese, Maltese Falcon, Falcon. Um, or the African Queen. Yeah. <laughs> as far that? as I'm aware, this is the only one that I I think really think deserves to yeah. be remembered and well the other ones do too but i think this this is his by far the this best is one a, in my opinion yes this is not only interesting as a as john houston movie it's interesting as a movie as a whole yeah so this film is it has quite a, a prestigious history this is a this is one of those movies that has been accepted into the uh, the national film registry in the library of congress mm-hmm for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, <laughs> which probably all three, uh, I think you could say. And oh, the, yeah. this is a film that I think is surprisingly influential today. Oh, yeah. It is on, it's very still well, ra- well rated. It is on the BFI, uh, not the BFI, the AFI, the American yeah, Film it's like Institute's, 38 or something. It's number 30, and the 10th anniversary, it's number 38. Um, oh, okay. And yeah. we may, later on, I think there's a decent discussion to be had about 
not inclusion on the BFI list, but we'll we'll get. I agree. We'll get there later. But well, because one thing that I find interesting is just the amount of different directors or or filmmakers in general that cite this as one of their favorite movies. Paul Thomas Anderson did it. Kubrick said it's one of his favorites. Sam Raimi said it was one of his favorites. Um, uh, Robert Redford said it was one of his favorites, and I think. I can see why, because I can see so much of where movies have gone in this movie, as simple as it is. Um, I, I think th- there's just so much going on with these characters, but the story is always very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I find it hard to, it's one of those movies that is so well cast. I find it hard to declare who's my favorite, but this one always I stands out to me is uh, Humphrey Bogart, because Humphrey Bogart is I think inherently a pretty creepy guy. <laughs> this and really plays Humphrey on that Bogart, in a way that none of his other yes. movies do, does. Well, no. Uh, have you seen In a Lonely Place? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I suppose that one too. Those are the only. These are the only two that I think really play into just how creepy he is. Not just his like sort of dead eyes, but his his voice as well. And he goes through a transformation in this movie that is subtle from scene to scene. But when you look at the beginning and the end, completely different people. It's interesting about that, that I think there has been some commentary on whether or not you can see his transformation in the beginning of his character. And I want to remain mm-hmm. spoiler free for the for the time being. So maybe putting a pin in per, in, in that full character, because yeah, okay. I'd like there's some specifics I'd like to discuss about that. But I would I would uh, disagree, not in a way that I think you're wrong, but in a personal opinion kind of way, is that Walter Houston is always by far the most enjoyable part of this film. He did Old get an Oscar for this. Walt, Walter he Houston. is great. I think he Bogart's is performance is w- great. Like, I, I have no fault mm-hmm. there. It's more of a personal preference kind of thing because Walter Houston mm-hmm. is just given – he's just having fun. Uh, like, this is one of the early examples – of someone having, of John Houston, the son of Walter Houston, he yeah. just casts his dad, and then his dad just fills the role in such a wonderful way that he can just almost, yeah. just it almost seems like Walter Houston is just existing on set. And that's obviously yes. not the case. He's obviously putting on a performance, but it feels so natural. It feels like this old man just wandered on set and was just having a good old time <laughs> with Humphrey Bogart digging for gold walter houston's performance in this is i think the the epicenter of every single portrayal of a pioneer ever (laughs) the happy crazy jigging pioneer everything from toy story 2 to atlantis the disney movie i don't know why i just went to disney movies but in walter houston here well he also kind of fulfills this character archetype of the the mentor yes Yes. You know, you have people like Gandalf, like the fantasy mentor is how that that trope is usually played mm-hmm. out. But this in this film, he very much is a early example of that kind of character of someone who who leads the protagonist and, and teaches them. Mm-hmm. He He's comedic relief that also sort of works as the the center of the movie i think obviously humphrey bogart is the center of it but mm-hmm. comedic relief that also becomes integral to the story where it doesn't feel like we cut to this character just for you know uh, a break from the madness like something like timon and pumbaa where <laughs> yes they're comedic and they're entertaining but they're also very present in the story walter houston is so good in this movie that 
there is a moment where he does a Looney Tunes-esque fourth wall break that anyone else, I would be cringing and I would hate it. But when Walter Houston does it, I'm like, all right, <laughs> sure. Well, the, the thing is, is he's, he's the smartest person in the movie and he's also the comic relief, which often doesn't go together. Often the comic relief is the dumbest person in the group. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's just capable. refreshing to see. You yeah. Know, even for an older film, it's still refreshing. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, so many modern films play too much into the, the oh, you have to be dumb in order to be funny. Exactly. And, you know, he's eccentric. Yes. Definitely. He's not completely up there, but he still knows what he's doing. He's very experienced in this one little uh, area of expertise. Um, but, you know, I but even um, the guy who plays Curtin, um, who... Uh, Tim Holt. What was his name? Tim Holt, yes. Tim Holt, who plays Bob Curtin, who Orson Welles famously said was one of his uh, favorite actors of all time. Um, His father, uh, uh, Tim Holt's father, was a like a a silent movie cowboy. So he's kind of, you know, he kind of grew up in this um, uh, sort of environment. And I think Tim Holt's pretty great, too. But, you know, I do agree that. Walter Houston is the most entertaining character and probably the best performance. But I do, whenever I think of this movie, I always think about the Bogart transformation because mm-hmm. obviously his character is the one that gets the most screen time and analysis. Yeah. There's one common complaint I hear about this movie. Arguably the only complaint um, is that they don't feel that there is a sense of progression of Humphrey Bogart's character. They feel that he starts off as a greedy asshole and ends the movie as a greedy asshole which I don't agree with, but I don't know if we want to save this for the spoiler section of the... The great thing about the film is that it's it's a film that is built upon this trio of main actors that all give great performances, and in particular because of the fact that the script is so well written. I have said before, I think, to Chandler, that this is, I think, one of the great scripts... It is. Uh, ...of all time. It really is. And it's... It's interesting because I I think this is a film that is, from a structural point of view, very different from your average Hollywood, classic Hollywood Western. It is, it might be a five-act movie. Regardless of that, it's, it's, I mean, look at it. The film starts out and the first 20 minutes are in Tampico. And it's almost like a complete separate sequence entirely from the rest of the film. Yeah. Yes, I agree. And this is something that I... Yeah, no, I do. Uh, Yes. It's something that I um, struggled with the first time that I watched it. Because when you look at those first 20 minutes of just uh, um, um, Dobbs and Curtin sort of struggling in Tampico, it does feel far removed from the rest of the movie being this gold search. But I think everything that happens those first 15 to 20 minutes is very important in setting up these characters and their goals and just the world that they live in. Mm -hmm. And... You know, it, it it it's a movie that feels very novel like in that way. And obviously it was based on a novel. Yeah. Um, but more so than greed, which literally just felt like, you know, you have insane gaps of time and insane growth of characters that doesn't necessarily translate to screen. I think that this movie really translates that thematic stuff that bridges these seemingly different worlds together. And yeah, well, I also one of the reasons why that opening part works so well is that it flows so quickly those are quick Mm -hmm. scenes where you're going from goal to goal to goal 
and everything is is a quick progression and things are changing with every single scene and then the film starts there's like this hard cut and now they're on the train going to search for gold and the film then then we have like a good sense of our characters and the film starts to take its time a bit more with where it, it's trying to go with them and it's you know, I'm not 100% sure why it works, but it, it's probably it's down to, you know, those opening 20 minutes are about character because you first you meet Dobbs first because it's his film. Yeah. And then you meet Holt and then you meet Walter Houston and it's this slow build up. And then it's almost like this this microcosm of the rest of the film, particularly in like the very first scene of where uh, what is what is his name? Dobbs. Dobbs, Dobbs yeah. is, Dobbs. you know, he bets on the lottery. He's a betting man and he doesn't get it. He goes and immediately just starts drinking his sorrows away and just starts berating the, this kid for like daring to offer him another ticket. And then after a few seconds of deliberation, uh, I guess I'll uh, I guess I'll gamble again on, <laughs> on the next one. And it, it's very indicative of his character and going from there. Yeah, it's especially um, uh, mirrors the the idea of prospecting that Walter Houston lays out early that, you know, you'll get 100 bucks, then you'll want 200 and then 200 to 500 and stuff like that. And Dobbs very clearly says, that's not going to be me. I'm going to exactly what I need and leave, even though that's clearly not what he's doing from the beginning. <laughs> it's a it's a tragedy. Almost this film. Almost. Where, yeah. In, in a way that, you know, where it's going like this film is not a film necessarily that surprises you in any way but it is a it's a slow descent into madness that yes you don't want it to go there you don't want to see Dobbs give into his base nature but it's and that's one of the things I really like about the center of the film is that when you really think about it Dobbs kind of starts sliding down that hill pretty pretty early into yeah. that second act Mm -hmm. But then there are events that kind of pull him out of that and you, you get to see who he is and, and how and why he kind of slides down. What's preventing yeah. him from being from going down that path and what kind of allows him to do so at the end? You know, when, whenever I watch movies like this, I always when I'm watching it, I'll think in my head, OK, what's the dumb version of this movie? <laughs> What is, what is the version of the script that an idiot would be like, oh, no, this is what we change. And what I really appreciate about this movie is that of the three characters, it's really only Dobbs that has his his um, ethics compromised. And I like that Curtin and Walter Houston. <laughs> I, I don't remember their names, but uh, I like that they remain relatively unchanged. Curtin has a moment um, when Dobbs gets collapsed under the mine. Where you can oh, yeah. Sort of see that but i that's right at that moment you can see that okay curtain is going to reject these these inner desires and go down the righteous path and i think framing the main character and having the two supporting characters come out unscathed is what really makes this effective i think it's easy on a first viewing to really see curtain and uh walter hughes character what's his name i don't remember Dobbs. Curtain. He's Walter Houston. Walter Houston. They're um, <laughs> they seem very good, and it's in comparison yes. to Dobbs, of course. But when uh, on further examination, they're not exactly good people. No, because uh, Walter Houston's character uh, he freely admits Howard. It's Howard. Howard. Howard freely admits when they're having the little campfire talk 
that if he was in his younger days and he was gold prospecting, that he might mm-hmm. try to kill someone for gold. He's not he's not uh, lying about the character and the nature of of gold. And we see Curtin, he debates with himself about saving Dobbs. It's not a it's not a gut reaction. He's not immediately going to do the right thing. Well, not only that, but Curtin also is on Dobbs's side in murdering the guy who follows him to the camp. Right. So and which they're I not... think makes the film very interesting that there are these yes. subtle shades of where everyone's they're not necessarily all great people, but they do the right thing yeah. in the end. Mm-hmm. As opposed to Dobbs. Yeah, because Dobbs is Dobbs's character is sort of what is showing them where they could go if they gave in to these uh these thoughts. Um but yeah, the, should we go into spoilers then? Yeah. So this is uh, honestly full on recommendation. It's a great film. A hard, hard, hard recommendation. One of my new favorite movies, a classic of American film in just about every way. Virtually flawless. It is. It's interesting that this film has a few does a few things that I think are so wonderful for classic American cinema to do. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the first movies ever to film on location in a country outside of America. It films in Tampico, Mexico. And I cannot stress enough that it makes the film seem so much more real and tangible from a Mm -hmm. lot of other Hollywood productions and Westerns from that era. And at the same time, though, it does it uses sets. There are background screen projections in this film. It feels very much like a classic Hollywood film, but also liberating in that sense, because it is. Yes, they're on location. They're shooting in these wild places. But it's so wonderful in that comparison to films. Yes, I I will say this. I struggle to even call this a Western. Yes, I know that it has a lot of the iconography of a Western. I know it has a lot of themes of the Western, but this doesn't feel like a Western to me. Similarly to something like um, There Will Be Blood, which you could on the outside call it a Western because it takes place in the American West in this time period and it has a lot of the you know the same costuming and stuff. But it's about something so much more universal. That's not necessarily tied to this time period. Yeah, going back to 2007 film, I just want to say one thing, just jump straight ahead to a spoiler. I think that the way that they kill off Dobbs it reminded me so much of the way that Llewellyn Moss dies in No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Where it's not yeah. it's not it's not super flashy. It's not treated at this as this big turning point. He is killed and they move on. They 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 he is slashed with a machete. You don't see him go down. You don't see his face as the blood pools. He falls off frame below frame and you the movie just forgets about him. He's given the death that he deserves. Exactly. We don't he he is not a good person and we don't deserve to to watch him get get cut down. But at the same time, what's what's interesting is that that death was originally planned to be uh, much gorier. Yeah, that he was originally supposed to be decapitated on film. And I mm-hmm. one, I love that too. <laughs> and I think it was Humphrey Bogart said, "What's wrong with being decapitated on film?" Which <laughs> is great, but also I think the way that it ultimately works out is just as effective as as anything. See, what what I find so fascinating about this movie is that John Huston is a very masculine director. He's he's very much a jock type 
who started directing movies. And you can see that with a lot of the camaraderie that him and Bogart felt. John Huston was a prankster notorious for the way he uh, he pranked on the actors on set, which we'll get into in a second. But you're also he he has this hyper masculine sense of like violence and his characters. He wants them to be rough and real and shady, amoral. But he's also working under the constraints of the studio system mm-hmm. and the Hayes Code. And I find it so fascinating the way that I feel like he would be Tarantino-esque or Peckinpah-esque if he was given free reign and he wasn't working under these restrictions. But the way that he works under these restrictions just feels so like ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. Mainly um, it, that, that, that death scene in particular is something that I feel is super reflective of that contrasting idea. Yeah. Another great directorial choice and we're talking about a lot of things that i am that make me excited for our discussion on the wild bunch because as <laughs> i'm sure you are aware we we already have touched on a, of quite a few parallels between those two films yes and yes one of the other things i love so much about this movie it's such a small thing but i wish more movies would do it there are stretches of dialogue in spanish with no subtitles and I yes. applaud the movie so much for doing that. I love it. And the great thing about it is you don't need the subtitles to understand anything no. about the scene. Especially that end scene where the, the bandits take uh, Dobbs's gear and try to sell it in the city. Mm-hmm. I thought I, when I saw it the first time, I thought, oh, did, did, is something did they fuck up? Is, is there supposed to be subtitles here? But you literally from the way that these characters move and the way that they start as sort uh, sort of start breaking under the pressure and the way that the crowd sort of moves in on them, you know exactly what's happening and you don't need the subtitles. Well, cause it's also set up before. It's a great example of setup and payoff where in the earlier in the film, it, it spends the time to show you of them making them, them buying the boroughs and making there's the marks and they write it down the brands and yeah. it's so focused on, that yeah. it allows for that moment later when you don't need to hear any of the dialogue and it can just play out visually. Yeah, and now that we're in spoiler discussion, I do want to point out a few absolutely brilliant parts of the script mm-hmm. where there's so there's so much setup and payoff that isn't exactly clear. You know, uh, it's not super over the top. It's not super um, uh, uh, present, but something like Walter Houston telling Dobbs earlier in the movie that you know, these bandits, they don't care. They'll kill you for your shoes. Or, or they say, you know, at a certain point, water becomes the greatest commodity in, uh, in over gold. And then you have the point where Dobbs has abandoned or tried to kill Curtin and he's walking and he's finally drawn to a watering hole where he meets these bandits who find him there. And when they kill him, they don't even realize he has gold and they literally just take his shoes <laughs> That becomes a huge part. And that mm-hmm. also tips off the people in the town that th- these guys probably stole it because you get that shot where one of the Mexicans looks down and it his feet are framed by like the donkey where you can see he has one really nice shoe on. And it's it, it was something that I don't think I realized this until the second time that there's just so much. It, it's a perfect circle. And you see in that in that last part with the the one shoe, the guy, the inspector looks down at that one shoe and, you know, he's like, well, th- this person has killed someone because he has one really nice shoe that that person yes. probably shouldn't have. And, ex- and that's also 
because you this is happening as a Spanish conversation is going on, and you know everything from just the look he gives and the way that it's framed, and that whole sequence, I was just like, ugh, amazing, amazing. Yeah. You know, it's a film of contrasts in a way of like a lot of the characterizations we kind of touched on this earlier between Dobbs yeah. and the other two. Um, but like the character development and the morals of the film, because the film has a lot of things to say about morals and how one should live your life, what kind of goals someone should have. And, you know, there's a great scene where you kind of they're by the campfire, all three of them, and they're sharing what they're going to do when they have the gold. And there's such this vivid contrast between all three of where mm -hmm. Howard's this old man and he's just like, oh, I just need a, a little gold. And then that like changes as the movie goes on when he gets kind of sidetracked by the, the this group of natives and finds a way of living beyond this gold that he doesn't need mm -hmm. it ultimately. And then you have Curtin who's goal is probably the most i think the film treats as the most admirable of all of them of essentially the film is 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 saying follow your dream in a way in a very roundabout way of he just wants to to farm citrus trees he really loves it he connected with it when he was younger and that's what he mm -hmm. he should do and it's just the the film is almost sentimental when it it deals with those moments and it's it's, yeah, the film's so dark, but that is like it's like a ray of, of sunshine in the film. And that's one of the reasons why Tim Holt's character is so interesting is that he does have that contrast between the other two of where Howard doesn't really have much to do in his life other than this. And then Dobbs is just about these very superficial things of go to a Turkish spa, sweat it out, yeah. get a haircut, get some food. And then and then they're like, well, what are you going to do after that? And it's like, what what else is there to do? <laughs> He's a very simple man, Dobbs. Yeah, yeah, because you know, uh, uh, Curtin is very much emblematic of this American idea of oh, I'm going to go through a rough period. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to get this gold, and then I'm going to turn into something greater. I mean, a, a farm, starting a farm with the money you got mining is the most like American thing I've ever heard. Um, it is, and then yeah, it, it's 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 very three very clearly different people with very clearly different aspirations in mind, and I another huge parallel to the Wild Bunch, which we'll get into later, is the ending, because again, I'm thinking about dumb movie at the end when <laughs> Curtin and Houston. I'm just gonna call him Houston. That's Curtin funny. and Houston find out that you know the gold's gone it's it's ironically returned back to where it came from it is dust it has returned to dust mm -hmm. and there's a mm -hmm. moment where houston laughs and in my mind every time i see it i'm like okay dumb movie would have him go crazy this is the point where dumb movie would make houston go crazy and then but there's like I a showdown that... at the end between all three of them yes. or something yes Touching real quick sidetrack, dumb movie also would have all three of these characters turn on each other and get greedy, mm. but smart movie just has the one and two likable characters. But again, dumb movie would be these guys go crazy, they go depressed crazy, but this movie, it's it starts off as like darkly funny, and then when Curtin joins, it's just funny. <laughs> I love the laugh at the end of this movie. And it's such a it's a such a great way to end it. It's one of my favorite movie endings because it, it it's so idealistic 
and it's making such a clear point, but at mm-hmm. the same time, the movie has earned it in a way that it doesn't feel yes. like it's hitting you over the head with what it's trying to say. It's not being preachy with its message. Yep. And I do want to point on one thing at the ending, the very final shot, which is the first time I thought it was strange. And this time I thought it was brilliant. It, it It's curtain riding away. Also, we'll get to this in the wild bunch, but so many fucking movies in this era, Western movies just end with people riding their horses away. But it's my darling really Clementine. Well. I thought of that final yes. shot from that film, but. which Tim Colton is also in. Uh, but it, that was at the moment where I'm like, oh, is this really how it ends? Just riding off in the sunset. But then the camera pans down to the gold sack, the sack of Dobbs's gold stuck on a cactus. And I thought that was strange the first time I saw it. But the second time I saw it now, here's my theory. This is this is this is okay. what I thought the second time. I, I have something very specific to say about this, too. So I'm curious if we have the okay. same same idea. I know this movie has nothing to do with the uh, the idea of um, reincarnation. <laughs> but when I saw this, I thought, is this cactus emblematic of Dobbs, even in the afterlife? A cactus <laughs> putting his prickly arms around the gold so nobody can touch it. <laughs> that is a wonderful thought. Not the thought I had, but that was wonderful. <laughs> I literally have two notes for this movie that I wrote down, and one of them is, is just says, is Dobbs a cactus? In a way, he's a very prickly man. He is! But, no, so uh, the reason why I love that ending shot, and I didn't love it immediately, because it's not, it's not ending on the most visually beautiful thing. Right? No, like it, the shot starts with the most visually beautiful thing, with yeah. Howard riding off and Curtin riding off. Uh, and then it pans down to dirt, essentially, <laughs> with a broken bag. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not. <laughs> the modern day equivalent not... is if you pan down in a parking lot to a to a grocery bag stuck on like a piece of gum. Yeah. Like that's the modern day equivalent of that. It's not the most beautifully staged shot. <laughs> no, but here's the thing. I noticed this a lot in the way that john houston likes to frame and begin his scenes mm-hmm. in that often he starts close up in a scene and where you are on a close-up shot you have detail and then the camera moves out to give you the context of the scene and the great thing the very first shot in the film is a close-up on the uh lottery board you don't know where mm-hmm. you are. You just see the words on the lottery board. And then it pulls out to Dobbs there. And you have the context of the shot. He's checking his numbers. And then the end of the film is, of course, them riding away. It's the wide shot. And then it goes in close to the money being gone. So it's mm-hmm. two kind of parallel shots that are both about like people losing money. It's it's very much emblematic of the the philosophy of the film of starting from nothing and ending with nothing except the nothing is so much more in the end. <laughs> Great movie. Uh, yeah. Also, this is one of those cases where it's one of the most horribly misquoted famous lines in all of film. <laughs> and a, a reference in Blazing Saddles, if anyone's seen that film, to, to this. Yes. Uh, obviously, the line being, we don't need no stinking badges is not, I mean, it's close, but it's not exactly it. Badges? Um, we ain't got no stinking badges. We don't need no stinking badges. 
Or we don't yeah, know it's something like that. Th- also, it's easy uh, to misquote because it does. It has a lot of repetition, is. but then it doesn't have a lot of repetition. Yes, I will say I love that actor. He's so great in this. The it's it's one of those great examples of a movie that feels big, but is actually very mm-hmm. self-contained. That has a lot of yes. repeating characters. There's it. The world seems big, but everything is re contextualized and you see things multiple times in the film you you, mm-hmm. you don't really have all that many locations when when all is said and done um, town train hill mexican city yeah essentially that's a, yeah the one scene i think that is this is again yet another thing that has echoes in the wild bunch but the one scene that i think is so probably the most beautiful and kind of um evocative of a mood because this Mm -hmm. film is it's an adventure so it doesn't spend all that much time creating atmosphere if that makes sense like not like a lot of films not like something like the lighthouse just begins with atmosphere and it's just atmosphere all the way through this is just more about the plot and what is happening with these characters yeah Uh, but there is one moment of i think really great atmosphere and that's when howard goes to save the little boy in the village which Mm -hmm. I think is another great little philosophical scene about how this this film is ultimately championing championing champ championing championing human life <laughs> over everything else, and yeah. you know Howard goes to save this little kid, and there's this it's this great atmospheric scene of him giving CPR essentially to this kid while all of these villagers are looking down, and there's these great shots where they just cover the background, and there's this kind of mm-hmm. low humming score to it that's halfway yeah. between music and humming and it's it's almost very spiritual in a sense it's interesting that those natives they only really come into play in the last third of the film although they're a really important part of the film and it's another reason why i think that the film adheres to something similar to like a three-act structure jacob from the future here just want to let you know that i meant to say five-act structure not three-act structure the beginning 20 minutes in tempico then you have yeah. prospecting, and at some point they accomplish their goal quite early into the film before the halfway mark. They yeah, get the goal. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you have this kind of central action sequence of the film where it suddenly is no longer about the goal. It's about how do you keep the gold once you have it? First, they have this kind of interloper who American guy who tries to butt in on their, their threesome. And then you have the the bandits come in and there's this whole central action sequence. And then the next kind of half an hour of the film is the out, the falling out of that and leaving the mine. And then the last, last ending of the film is Dobbs is by himself and everyone like the, the very last kind of falling out and the, the thematic ending. Yeah. See, I I struggle to even call this an adventure movie. I mean, I guess it is as far as where, what happens. It's hard to classify. Saying like, yes, you keep saying like action and really there's not a whole lot of action in the sense, you know, people fighting or or big specifically action devoted scenes. But there's there is two a lot of gunfire scenes, really. Yes. Um, and the fight, the, <laughs> the fight of the bar. Which fun fact took five days to film? Oh my goodness, that's one of the great right? things with like character uh, development of like Howard and Curtin aren't exactly the the not Howard and Curtin Dobbs and Curtin 
aren't exactly they're not action heroes. Yeah, no, they're not gr- good they at what they do. Barely win two v one against this guy. They barely get to be able to beat him up. They, it takes them both of them, and even them, and you know that that's further expanded on of where when they first start going gold hunting, Howard is just like this mm-hmm. little billy goat who's just running up ahead of them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's one of my favorite this, moments. Yeah, yeah. At first, you think Howard's this old man. And like, how is he going to keep up with them? And then it turns out, like, how are they going to keep up with Howard? Which is great. Great yeah. little reversal. Uh, and I, I said earlier that this movie is virtually flawless. And I, after I said that, I thought, what is the flaw? And if there's one thing that I don't like about this movie, that fight scene. It sounds like they're slapping pudding every time they punch. <laughs> and I understand what they were doing. They were going for a very realistic. This is not a glamorous fight. These are it's just a drunken brawl. You can tell that the by the the lack of grace they have when they're fighting, the fact that people are just watching and not intervening or cheering, but the sounds when they actually land the blows, it's like Yeah. And that's my only problem with the movie. But it's a great scene otherwise. Um I think the last thing I want to do is is what other influences we we might have seen because i think we talked about there will be blood also breaking bad perhaps has some oh yes some interesting yes. Uh, parallels here and some influence jean-pierre melville's filmography specifically mm-hmm. his uh movies like les samurai or the red circle where they are films that are with these uh morally dubious characters that follow them and mm-hmm. then ultimately, they get their comeuppance in the end. And I think this is one of the first films that really, in not a kind of cliched and overly condescending way, because I think a lot of early Hollywood films, a lot of them are like, oh, the good guys always win. But this one, I think, earns that in a way that a lot of them don't. Yeah. And this, you can almost see the influence in many future films of someone who is morally terrible that gets their comeuppance in the end and how to justify that in the narrative and i think you can see that in in a lot of films almost i think also good the bad and the ugly potentially has some some uh yep some I agree. echoes there maybe even something like the hidden fortress i've never seen it i was uh that might be a little bit of a of a jump fargo maybe <laughs> the greed of fargo and the kind of yeah the greed and the structure of fargo because Fargo is another one of those movies where it's really hard to categorize into a three act structure because people characters just sort of come in and out of the narrative. Um, I, like I said before, no country. There's a lot of no country for old men in this movie. Um, there will be blood, obviously, uh, uh, obvious parallel. I think also you could if you want to make a stretch, uh, you couldn't even maybe say Parasite a little. How? Where it's about greed, it's about getting money, yes. and about how in the end yes. there's kind of like this final ten minutes where it's about the 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 consequences of your greed and what really matters in this world. And what really matters isn't yeah. necessarily yeah. the money. It's about the family, and ultimately they don't get that in the end in, in something like Parasite. And that's more. I don't think that there was any conscious influence there. I just think that that you you might be able to trace the ideas. That's there. the thing. There are there are some scenes that, you know, you, you can obviously feel are, are almost referenced in other movies. Uh, Do you ever see John, John Carpenter's They Live? Yes. 
There's a very long fight sequence in John Carpenter's They Live that reminded me a lot of the bar fight here. But sure. it's like I see it. There, there are very few scenes where I'm like, oh, th- this was done here. But so much of the essence of this movie, the, the thematic essence, the, the, the way that it the, the gradual decline as instead of the, the scene to scene stuff. There's so much of every movie in this movie and that. But typically when you have a movie like that, it it's they usually don't hold up as their own experiences. You sort of see bits and pieces and you find it interesting in that this holds up on its own and it's entertaining and it's, and it's influential and you can see the influence, but it's never, you never see it as an influential movie. You see it as the treasure of the Sierra Madre. And that's why I think it's so great. And I guess my, just my final little thought on this is that I, the reason why I love it so much is that I really connect with that kind of final message of the film, the dust to dust kind of thing, the, the impermanence of money. And I guess it's, it, it might even be like my own personal philosophy of, I very much agree with Howard that sometimes in life, it doesn't always go your way and you just have to laugh it off. And that's the best way. Exactly. Of, yeah, that's the best way of dealing with it. And the first time I don't think I did the second time, maybe not, but this time, when Howard started laughing at the end, I was like, I get it. I get the cosmic joke yeah. played on them. It's funny. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, my closing thing will be, I just, I just love movies that aren't afraid to show the darker side uh, characters who or actors who aren't afraid of looking weak or evil or, or despicable. Everyone in this movie, Walter Houston famously wanted, didn't want to play this part because he felt he was still able to pull off lead roles and he took his dentures out for this role and Humphrey Bogart was the complete opposite who and he told people ahead of this movie wait till you see me in this next one I'm really terrible and I I love that they're all so unafraid to show these horrible sides of humanity in a way that they're still likable by the end except for Dobbs of course it's essential it's amazing it's one of the best movies ever made the fact that it's not on this list is a is a shame tragedy it's a damn shame It's a tragedy, but I think it's the perfect bridge into the next discussion, which is Sam Peckinpah's 1969? Yes. 1969 film, The Wild Bunch. All right, quick break. 